Chapter 71, Part 1 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Part 1. Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 71, Part 1. Prospect of the Ruins of Rome in the 15th Century. Four Causes of Decay and Destruction. Example of the Colosseum. Renovation of the City. Conclusion of the Whole Work. In the last days of Pope Eugenius IV, two of his servants, the learned Pogius and a friend, ascended the Capitoline Hill, reposed themselves among the ruins of columns and temples, and viewed from that commanding spot the wide and various prospect of desolation. The place and the object gave ample scope for moralizing on the vicissitudes of fortune, which spares neither man nor the proudest of his works, which buries empires and cities in a common grave, and it was agreed that, in proportion to her former greatness, the fall of Rome was the more awful and deplorable. Her primeval state, such as she might appear in a remote age, when Evander entertained the stranger of Troy, has been delineated by the fancy of Virgil. This Tarpeian rock was then a savage and solitary thicket. In the time of the poet, it was crowned with the golden roofs of a temple. The temple is overthrown. The gold has been pillaged. The wheel of fortune has accomplished her revolution. And the sacred ground is again disfigured with thorns and brambles. The hill of the capital, on which we sit, was formerly the head of the Roman Empire, the citadel of the earth, the terror of kings, illustrated by the footsteps of so many triumphs, enriched with the spoils and tributes of so many nations. This spectacle of the world, how is fallen, how changed, how defaced? The path of victory is obliterated by vines, and the benches of the senators are concealed by a dunghill. Cast your eyes on the Palatine Hill, and seek among the shapeless and enormous fragments the marble theater, the obelisks, the colossal statues, the portico of Nero's palace. Survey the other hills of the city. The vacant space is interrupted only by ruins and gardens. The forum of the Roman people, where they assemble to enact their laws and elect their magistrates, is now enclosed for the cultivation of potherbs, or thrown open for the reception of swine and buffaloes. The public and private edifices that were founded for eternity lie prostrate, naked and broken, like limbs of a mighty giant, and the ruin is more visible from the stupendous relics that have survived the injuries of time and fortune. These relics are minutely described by Pogius, one of the first who raised his eyes from the monuments of legendary to those of classic superstition. 1. Besides a bridge, an arch, a sepulchor, and the pyramid of Cestius, he could discern of the age of the Republic, a double row of vaults in the salt office of the capital, which were inscribed with the name and munificence of Catullus. 2. Eleven temples were visible in some degree, from the perfect form of the Pantheon, to the three arches and a marble column of the Temple of Peace, which Vespasian erected after the civil wars and the Jewish triumph. 3. Of the number, which he rashly defines, of seven thermi, or public baths, 
none were sufficiently entire to represent the use and distribution of the several parts. But those of Diocletian and Antoninus Caracalla still retained the titles of their founders, and astonished the curious spectator, who, in observing their solidity and extent, the variety of marbles, the size and multitude of the columns, compared the labor and expense with the use and importance. Of the baths of Constantine, of Alexander, of Domitian, or rather of Titus, some vestige might yet be found. 4. The triumphal arches of Titus, Severus, and Constantine were entire, both the structure and the inscriptions. A falling fragment was honored with the name of Trajan, and two arches then extant in the Flaminian way have been ascribed to the base memory of Faustina and Gallienus. 5. After the wonder of the Colosseum, Pogius might have overlooked a small amphitheater of brick, most probably for the use of the Praetorian camp. The theaters of Marcellus and Pompeii were occupied in a great measure by the public and private buildings, and in the circus, Agonalus and Maximus, little more than the situation and the form could be investigated. 6. The columns of Trajan and Antonine were still erect, but the Egyptian obelisks were broken or buried. A people of gods and heroes, the workmanship of art, was reduced to one equestrian figure of gilt brass and to five marble statues, of which the two most conspicuous were the two horses, Aphidius and Praxiteles. The two mausoleums or sepulchres of Augustus and Hadrian could not totally be lost, but the former was only visible as a mound of earth, and the latter, the castle of St. Angelo, had acquired the name and appearance of a modern fortress. With the addition of some separate and nameless columns, such were the remains of the ancient city, for the marks of a more recent structure might be detected in the walls, which formed the circumference of ten miles, included three hundred and seventy-nine turrets, and opened into the country by thirteen gates. This melancholy picture was drawn above nine hundred years after the fall of the Western Empire, and even of the Gothic kingdom of Italy, a long period of distress and anarchy, in which empire and arts and riches had migrated from the banks of the Tiber, was incapable of restoring or adorning the city, and as all that is human must retrograde if it do not advance, every successive age must have hastened the ruin of the works of antiquity. To measure the progress of decay, and to ascertain at each era, the state of each edifice, would be an endless and a useless labor, and I shall content myself with two observations, which will introduce a short inquiry into the general causes and effects. Two hundred years before the eloquent complaint of Pogius, an anonymous writer composed a description of Rome. His ignorance may repeat the same objects under strange and fabulous names, yet this barbarous topographer had ears and eyes. He could observe the visible remains, he could listen to the tradition of the people, and he distinctly enumerates seven theaters, eleven baths, twelve arches, and eighteen palaces, of which many had disappeared before the time of Pogius. It is apparent that many stately monuments of antiquity survived till a late period, and that the principles of destruction acted with vigorous and increasing energy in the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries. 2. The same reflection may be applied to the last three ages, and we should vainly seek the Septizonium of Severus, which is celebrated by Petrarch and the antiquarians of the sixteenth century. While the Roman edifices are still entire, the first blows, however weighty and impetuous, 
were resisted by the solidity of the mass and the harmony of the parts. But the slightest touch would precipitate the fragments of arches and columns that already nodded to their fall. After a diligent inquiry, I can discern four principal causes of the ruin of Rome, which continued to operate in a period of more than a thousand years. 1. The injuries of time and nature. 2. The hostile acts of the barbarians and Christians. 3. The use and abuse of the materials. and 4. The domestic quarrels of the Romans. 1. The art of man is able to construct monuments far more permanent than the narrow span of his own existence. Yet these monuments, like himself, are perishable and frail, and, in the boundless annals of time, his life and his labors must equally be measured as a fleeting moment. Of the simple and solid edifice, it is not easy to circumscribe the duration. As the wonder of ancient days, the pyramids attracted the curiosity of the ancients. A hundred generations, the leaves of autumn, have dropped into the grave, and after the fall of the pharaohs, and the Ptolemies, and the Caesars, and Caliphs, the same pyramids stand erect and unshaken above the floods of the Nile. A complex figure of various and minute parts is more accessible to injury and decay, and the silent lapse of time is often accelerated by hurricanes and earthquakes, by fires and inundations. The air and earth have doubtless been shaken, and the lofty turrets of Rome have tottered from their foundations. Yet the seven hills do not appear to be placed on the great cavities of the globe, nor has the city, in any age, been exposed to convulsions of nature, which, in the climate of Lisbon, Antioch, or Lima, have crumbled in a few moments the work of ages into dust. Fire is the more powerful agent of life and death. The rapid mischief may be kindled and propagated by the industry or negligence of mankind, and every period of the Roman annals is marked by the repetition of similar calamities. A memorable conflagration, the guilt or misfortune of Nero's reign, continued, though with unequal fury, either six or nine days. Innumerable buildings, crowded in close and crooked streets, supplied perpetual fuel for the flames, and when they ceased, four only of the fourteen regions were left entire. Three were totally destroyed, and seven were deformed by the relics of smoking and lacerated edifices. In the full meridian of empire, the metropolis arose with fresh beauty from her ashes, yet the memory of the old deplored their irreparable losses. The arts of Greece, the trophies of victory, the monuments of primitive or fabulous antiquity. In the days of distress and anarchy, every wound is mortal, every fall irretrievable, nor can the damage be restored either by the public care of government or the activity of private interest. Yet two causes may be alleged which render the calamity of fire more destructive to a flourishing than a decayed city. 1. The more combustible materials of brick, timber, and metals are first melted or consumed, but the flames may play without injury or effect on the naked walls and massy arches that have been despoiled of their ornaments. 2. It is among the common and plebeian habitations that a mischievous spark is most easily blown to a conflagration, but as soon as they are devoured, the greater edifices, which have resisted or escaped, are left as so many islands in a state of solitude and safety. From her situation, Rome is exposed to the danger of frequent inundations. Without accepting the Tiber, the rivers that descend from either side of the Apennine have a short and irregular course. A shallow stream in the summer heats, and impetuous torrent when it is swelled in the spring or winter, by the fall of rain or the melting of snows. 
When the current is repelled from the sea by adverse winds, when the ordinary bed is inadequate to the weight of waters, they rise above the banks, and overspread without limits or control the plains and cities of the adjacent country. Soon after the triumph of the First Punic War, the Tiber was increased by unusual rains, and the inundation, surpassing all former measure of time and place, destroyed all the buildings that were situate below the hills of Rome. According to the variety of ground, the same mischief was produced by different means, and the edifices were either swept away by the sudden impulse, or dissolved and undermined by the long continuance of the flood. Under the reign of Augustus, the same calamity was renewed. The lawless river overturned the palaces and temples on its banks, and after the labors of the emperor in cleansing and widening the bed that was encumbered with ruins, the vigilance of his successors was exercised by similar dangers and designs. The project of diverting into new channels the Tiber itself, or some of the dependent streams, was long opposed by superstition and local interests. Nor did the use compensate the toil and cost of the tardy and imperfect execution. The servitude of rivers is the noblest and most important victory which man has obtained over the licentiousness of nature, and if such were the ravages of the Tiber under a firm and active government, what could oppose, or who could enumerate, the injuries of the city after the fall of the Western Empire? A remedy was at length produced by the evil itself. The accumulation of rubbish and the earth that has been washed down from the hills is supposed to have elevated the plain of Rome fourteen or fifteen feet, perhaps, above the ancient level, and the modern city is less accessible to the attacks of the river. 2. The crowd of writers of every nation who impute the destruction of the Roman monuments to the Goths and the Christians have neglected to inquire how far they were animated by a hostile principle, and how far they possessed the means and leisure to satiate their enmity. In the preceding volumes of this history I have described the triumph of barbarism and religion. I can only resume, in a few words, their real or imaginary connection with the ruin of ancient Rome. Our fancy may create, or adopt, a pleasing romance, that the Goths and Vandals sallied from Scandinavia, ardent to avenge the flight of Odin, to break the chains, and to chastise the oppressors of mankind, that they wished to burn the records of classic literature, and to found their national architecture on the broken remains of the Tuscan and Corinthian orders. But, in simple truth, the northern conquerors were neither sufficiently savage nor sufficiently refined to entertain such aspiring ideas of destruction and revenge. The shepherds of Scythia and Germany had been educated in the armies of empire, whose discipline they acquired and whose weakness they invaded. With the familiar use of the Latin tongue, they had learned to reverence the names and titles of Rome, and though incapable of emulating, they were more inclined to admire than to abolish the arts and studies of a brighter period. In the transient possession of a rich and unresisting capital, the soldiers of Alaric and Genseric were stimulated by the passions of a victorious army. Amidst the wanton indulgence of lust or cruelty, portable wealth was the object of their search. Nor could they derive either pride or pleasure from the unprofitable reflection that they had battered to the ground the works of the consuls and Caesars. Their monuments were indeed precious. The Goths evacuated Rome on the 6th, the Vandals on the 15th day, and though it be far more difficult to build than to destroy, their hasty assault would have made a slight impression on the solid piles of antiquity. We may remember that both Alaric and Genseric affected to spare the buildings of the city. 
that they subsisted in strength and beauty under the auspicious government of Theodoric, and that the momentary resentment of Totila was disarmed by his own temper and the advice of his friends and enemies. From these innocent barbarians, the reproach may be transferred to the Catholics of Rome. The statues, altars, and houses of the demons were an abomination in their eyes, and in the absolute command of the city, they might labor with zeal and perseverance to erase the idolatry of their ancestors. The demolition of the temples in the East affords to them an example of conduct, and to us an argument of belief, and it is probable that a portion of guilt or merit may be imputed with justice to the Roman proselytes. Yet their abhorrence was confined to the monuments of heathen superstition, and the civil structures that were dedicated to the business or pleasure of society might be preserved without injury or scandal. The change of religion was accomplished not by a popular tumult, but by the decrees of the emperors, of the senate, and of time. The bishops of Rome were commonly the most prudent and least fanatic, nor can any positive charge be opposed to the meritorious act of saving and converting the majestic structure of the Pantheon. 3. The value of any object that supplies the wants or pleasures of mankind is compounded of its substance and its form of the materials and the manufacture. Its price must depend on the number of persons by which it may be acquired and used, on the extent of the market, and consequently on the ease or difficulty of remote exportation. According to the nature of the commodity, its local situation, and the temporary circumstances of the world. The barbarian conquerors of Rome usurped in a moment the toil and treasures of successive ages. But, except the luxuries of immediate consumption, they must view without desire all that cannot be removed from the city in the Gothic wagons or in the fleet of the Vandals. Gold and silver were the first objects of their avarice. As in every country, and in the smallest compass, they represent the most ample command of the industry and possessions of mankind. A vase or a statue of those precious metals might tempt the vanity of some barbarian chief, but the grosser multitude, regardless of the form, was tenacious only of the substance and the melted ingots might be readily divided and stamped into the current coin of the empire. The less active or less fortunate robbers were reduced to the baser plunder of brass, lead, iron, and copper. Whatever had escaped the Goths and Vandals were pillaged by the Greek tyrants, and the emperor Constans, in his rapacious visit, stripped the bronze tiles from the roof of the Pantheon. The edifices of Rome might be considered as a vast and various mine, the first labor of extracting the materials was already performed. The metals were purified and cast. The marbles were hewn and polished. And after foreign or domestic rapine had been satiated, the remains of the city, could a purchaser have been found, were still venal. The monuments of antiquity had been left naked of their precious ornaments. But the Romans would demolish with their own hands the arches and walls, if the hope of profit could surpass the cost of the labor and exportation. If Charlemagne had fixed in Italy the seat of the Western Empire, his genius would have aspired to restore, rather than to violate, the works of the Caesars. But policy confined the French monarch to the forests of Germany. His taste could be gratified only by destruction, and the new palace of Aix-la-Chapelle was decorated with the marbles of Ravenna and Rome. Five hundred years after Charlemagne, a king of Sicily, Robert, the wisest and most liberal sovereign of the age, was supplied with the same materials by the easy navigation 
of the Tiber and the sea, and Petrarch sighs an indignant complaint that the ancient capital of the world should adorn from her own bowels the slothful luxury of Naples. But these examples of plunder or purchase were rare in the darker ages, and the Romans, alone and unenvied, might have applied to their private or public use the remaining structures of antiquity. If, in their present form and situation, they had not been useless in a great measure to the city and its inhabitants. The walls still described the old circumference, but the city had descended from the seven hills into the campus martius, and some of the most noblest monuments which have braved the injuries of time were left in a desert far remote from the habitations of mankind. The palaces of the senators were no longer adapted to the manners or fortunes of their indigent successors. The use of baths and porticos was forgotten. In the sixth century, the games of the theater, amphitheater, and circus had been interrupted. Some temples were devoted to the prevailing worship, but the Christian churches preferred the holy figure of the cross, and fashion, or reason, had distributed, after a peculiar model, the cells and offices of the cloister. Under the ecclesiastical reign, the number of these pious foundations was enormously multiplied, and the city was crowned with forty monasteries of men, twenty of women, and sixty chapters and colleges of canons and priests, who aggravated, instead of relieving, the depopulation of the tenth century. But if the forms of ancient architecture were disregarded by a people insensible of their use and beauty, the plentiful materials were applied to every call of necessity or superstition, till the fairest columns of the Ionic and Corinthian orders, the richest marbles of Paros and Numidia, were degraded, perhaps to the support of a convent or a stable. The daily havoc which is perpetuated by the Turks in the cities of Greece and Asia may afford a melancholy example, and in the gradual destruction of the monuments of Rome, Sixtus V may alone be excused for employing the stones of the Septizonium in the glorious edifice of St. Peter's. A fragment, a ruin, howsoever mangled or profaned, may be viewed with pleasure and regret, but the greater part of the marble was deprived of substance, as well as of place and proportion. It was burnt to lime for the purpose of cement. Since the arrival of Pogius, the Temple of Concord, and many capital structures had vanished from his eyes, and an epigram of the same age expresses a just and pious fear that the continuance of this practice would finally annihilate all the monuments of antiquity. The smallness of their numbers was the sole check on the demands and depredations of the Romans. The imagination of Petrarch might create the presence of a mighty people, but I hesitate to believe that, even in the 14th century, they could be reduced to a contemptible list of 33,000 inhabitants. From that period to the reign of Leo X, if they multiplied to the amount of 85,000, the increase of citizens was in some degree pernicious to the ancient city. End of chapter 71, part 1.